The next day after we arrived at Bamor, father received a letter from the officer in charge of the British administration in that area asking father to attend a meeting the following day. A jeep would collect him at 9 a.m. As father's English was not fluent, he decided that it would be useful if Audrey acted as interpreter. He did not want to leave me behind with anyone and it was therefore agreed that I should also accompany him. The officer was a very tall man with a moustache, thick eyebrows and a red face, very smartly dressed in a suit and tie. Father shook hands and introduced us, explaining why it had been necessary to bring us. We were ushered into the office where Father and Audrey were given chairs facing him at the table and I was seated in a corner next to a window. It was a small room, however, and I was able to hear quite clearly the conversation that went on between the officer and my father. At first the officer was polite and friendly, asking father about our flight to Bermore and listening carefully as father told him about mother and two of his children still being at the American base. Then his attitude suddenly changed. He sat up erect, opening his file, and started to examine the contents. His relaxed expression turned serious, and looking directly at father across the table, he explained why father had been summoned. He wanted to ask father some questions. Father looked puzzled, but continued to listen attentively. We have received information that you were a Japanese sympathizer. Is that true? What? Audrey cried out. Although obviously shocked, father kept his composure. He remonstrated with Audrey in Shun. She must keep calm, keep quiet and speak only when she was interpreting. Father rubbed his hands, a familiar gesture of his when concerned, looked up and asked the officer what he meant by the words Japanese sympathizer. What exactly has he done that anyone should accuse him of being one? The officer looked uncomfortable and seemed to be lost for words. He consulted his file, turning the pages over and over again. He did not answer father's questions. He replied with a question. Had father at any time assisted the Japanese in their war against the Allies? Father answered calmly that he had never done so. He and his father before him had served the British government loyally. When the British had retreated from the Shan state, they had been shocked, and when the Japanese entered Loksak town, his father... His family, relatives from Kantung and evacuees from Taunji had evacuated to the villages. But once the Shan state, like all other Southeast Asian countries, had fallen into Japanese hands, there was nothing that they could do but submit to the rule. When the soldiers had demanded food supply, they had to comply, and when they came to the house, they had been obliged to give them lunch or dinner. He and his family had never been friendly with the soldiers. 
There had been a few Japanese civilians working in private firms in Luxalt, with whom our family had become friendly. These were nice, ordinary people caught up in a war, as was our family, not of their desire or making. Father went on to explain our flight, leaving him and Uncle Chao Meng, their subsequent house arrest, and finally the desperate trek through the jungle to the American 101 Army Base Camp. The officer had listened intently, making no attempt to interrupt, but making notes while Father talked. When Father finished, there were more questions. What had happened to the six British parachutists who had been dropped in Locksart Valley in 1942? I had been listening intently. My English was good enough to understand everything that had been said. I remember quite clearly the incident to which the officer referred, although I have been only 11 at the time. The whole family, including my mother's family from Kentung, had been at my paternal grandfather's palace in Loxhout to pray and lunch together when a happy gathering had been disturbed by the screeching arrival of Japanese army trucks into the courtyard. Living under Japanese rule was something to which we were becoming accustomed, and their arrival at our house was often not a cause for fear, but a demand for food. Nevertheless, the Japanese were unpredictable and one could never quite know what would happen. We all rushed to the window. There was an unusual amount of activity, gestulation and noise as the soldiers jumped from the trucks and we suddenly realized, to our horror, that the cause of this excitement was six prisoners handcuffed and changed being dragged unceremoniously towards the house. We were to learn later that they were British spies and had parachuted into a field in Locksout. The soldiers had brought them to us to be fed before taking them to we knew not what fate. There was no direct contact allowed as our servants rushed around, anxiously putting food on the table, but we were able to observe from the side bedrooms which overlooked the dining room. The distress of these men was obvious, and I clearly called Aunt Joan, saying, Can't we do anything to help them? The reply from one of the uncles had not been unsympathetic in tone, but it had been adamant. Don't be stupid. These soldiers won't hesitate to shoot anyone who shows the slightest sympathy to their enemies. I came out of this reverie to hear Father talking about this incident. Loxout had been swarming with Japanese soldiers at that time, and some had seen the drop. The parachutists had landed in an open field, no bushes nor trees to hide them. They had been captured immediately. Father described how they had been brought to our house, and the sadness and frustration that he and his family had felt at our inability to help them. The officer now seemed quite satisfied with Father's answers, an explanation. His expression softened and he became relaxed again. 
He jotted some notes in his file and then apologized to father. He was sorry that he had had to question him. It was his job to put the record straight. He shook hands with father and thanked him for his cooperation. Before leaving, father expresses gratitude for being given the opportunity to clear himself, but explained his concern at how the mistake had arisen. Could the officer tell him who had given the false information? The officer did not know who was their informer, but explained that even if he had, he could not have revealed his identity. The matter was now closed. He wished father goodbye and good luck. As soon as we were out of the office, Audrey sighed with relief. I am glad it's over, and father agreed. Nevertheless, we were still intrigued to know who was the informant. Audrey and I were in agreement that it could have been Sal Huck or perhaps one of his supporters. We knew that he had always had a grudge against father and that there had been a sense of competition between them, which on Sal Huck's side was fierce and unfriendly. We could not think of anybody else who would hate father so much as to try and discredit him in the eyes of the British government. Father refused to be drawn into conversation. He chided us. We had no evidence and we must keep our suspicions to ourselves. We were not, however, without support in our speculation. When we returned to our lodging, Father told the Sobor of Maimpun what had happened and he too expressed the opinion that it had been Sao Huck's doing. Apparently, when the Sobar of Maimpun was in Taunji, a short while earlier, there had been rumours circulating among the government officials that Sao Huck would do anything to become Sobar of Lok South. If this meant destroying father and his family, so be it. Although the matter was closed, as far as the British were concerned, the incident continued to haunt father and the habit he had developed of protecting mother whenever possible was broken when she joined us. It was something of such importance that he had to tell her, and we noticed that it continued to be a topic of discussion between them and the Sobar of Maimpun during the rest of our time in Bamor. A few days later, the Sobar of Maimpun and our family were moved to a big wooden house in which Sobar of Sanwi, Andaphne's ex-husband, was acting as host to all Shan evacuees. The day after, we were overjoyed to be reunited with Mother and Kenrick. Unfortunately, the plane had only two spare seats, and Mother had reluctantly agreed to leave Jean with Uncle Chao Meng until there was a place on another flight. It was obvious to us that Mother was distressed by this, and I used my childlike charm to appeal to the flight captain. Please, could he bring my sister as soon as possible? He listened sympathetically to me. He probably had a family of his own and promised to do his best. Clearly, any mother would be upset at having to leave one child behind. But Jean, at 11 years, was self-sufficient. She was familiar with Uncle Chao Meng and mother trusted him. 
It might only be a few days before another flight was available, yet Mother seemed overwhelmed by the event. She had been so badly damaged by the stress of protecting her family that she could no longer cope. She could not face being separated from any of us. The captain's best, however, proved to be good enough. Jean arrived the next morning. This was one source of worry removed, but it was only one, and there proved to be many more. Bermore at the end of the wall was dirty, dusty, and pretty miserable. The house was not comfortable, and the sanitation was poor. Mother, who was fastidious about hygiene and food preparation, found it difficult to accept water and meals, over whose preparation she had no control. In the event, her concern proved well-founded. Over half the evacuees in Bomore became infected with typhoid bacteria. Fortunately, this lasted only a very short time, and we were soon able to return to the Shan state. Very recently, 1998, I read a book, Behind Japanese Lines, written by an American, Richard Dunlop. The book revealed details about Loxout, of which I am certain my family had no knowledge. According to Richard Dunlop, at the time we were fleeing for our lives, Loxout became a battleground. It was the last stronghold of the Japanese in the Shan state and as such a strategic target for the Allies. There had been a fierce battle fought between the Kitchens under the command of Red Macdox, an agent serving in the Detachment 101. Detachment 101 was an army of men working in intelligence and guerrilla activities trained by American officers. Later, these agents and kitchen rangers became involved in infantry missions, fighting and defeating the Japanese, particularly in the Shan states. During the vicious struggle for Loxout, 400 kitchens and 700 Japanese soldiers had fought a 12-hour battle, resulting in many casualties, particularly on the Japanese side. Loxout was taken by the Detachment 101 on the 1st of June, 1945. There was a description in the book of an incident of which I did have some knowledge and a clear recollection, although I had been only a child at the time. This was about the story of the six British spies about which my father had been questioned. It was interesting that the research for this book was based on the propaganda information which Tokyo Radio had broadcast at the time. According to this account, it was the villagers who had been first on the scene. It said that they had shot three of the spies and delivered the rest to the Japanese. It was quite clear now where the British officer had received his first information. Reading this book brought back many memories and resurrected an unanswered question. Why, knowing as they must have that Loxout was the centre of Japanese activity, did the British choose to drop their men right at the centre? Richard Dunlop does not answer or even address that question, and it will continue to be one of the puzzles. Music 